Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Let's have a word of prayer and we will begin our evening here at My Therapist Says. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful gift of being adopted into your family. Uh, the family of God, and we thank you for that, that privilege. Thank you that Jesus prayed on our behalf for us becoming part of that. As John 17 even talks about, he prayed for those disciples, those who would follow, and even those of us here today, that we would be one in God's family. And so we thank you for that. We, we pray your blessing upon these moments that we have, that we would honor you, and most importantly, we would sense your presence in your direction and your guidance and perhaps even brand new ways of thinking about and applying skills in the area of adoption. So we bless you this night. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Just like to mention, you've had an opportunity to read uh, some of the background of Carl Stinsky, who is our presenter tonight. And you'll notice that he is a specialist in adoption. He speaks all over the country. He's uh, currently working on research. I think you have a book that's almost com working on it. completed. He's working on that, the last I knew. Um, he's the only person that my staff had invited at the Center for Enriching Relationships that we had invited to come and speak to about 22 people. I think we maybe had 16 there today. But when he spoke uh, several months ago, they all said, we need to have him back. And I had not heard them ask of another person <laughs> that much. And so again today, we were privileged to have him, as I mentioned a moment ago. And he's very fluid in his communication. And he's well-versed on this topic, not only personally, but professionally. So we really appreciate your specialty in this area. And he's going to now present about 15 minutes or so of kind of an introduction. And then as he's speaking, I hope that you'll be writing your questions, the questions you might have. So at any time, please just raise that in the air at any time, even now. If, if someone has a question, just raise that in the air. And one of our hosts will come by and receive that, as I mentioned a moment ago. Bring that to me. Here's one right here. Thank you. And then we will take those questions, and really that will drive the rest of the evening. So without any further introductions, Carl, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Don. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight and for you all to, to come here and listen to this. I know that hearing about adoption, speaking out about adoption can bring up a lot of emotions. So the first thing I always like to say is, is that tonight may trigger some things. It may bring up some emotions or feelings that you didn't know were there. It may bring some up that you knew were there and have been dealing with, but don't quite know how to go, where to go from here. And so just to prepare you for that, that we are going to be talking about some of that tonight. I don't want anybody leaving at the end of the night feeling like they're just spun out and unwound from this. So make sure you either grab somebody to talk to, come up and talk to me afterwards. We want to make sure to package you up and put you back together before you go out. But as Don said, um, am I working? Getting there we go. Uh, I am a post-adoption specialist. How that happened is that I started my master's degree program an entirely different subject. 
And while I was studying it, the first assignment that I had was to write a paper on five words that had impacted my life. The first word on the top of that list for no reason was adopted. I am adopted. I didn't think it had anything to do with my life other than just the fact that I was adopted. I never attributed it to any success or failures in my life, any emotional issues or challenges. It was just something that was. My entire life I'd known I was adopted, and it wasn't an issue. However, after two weeks of doing research on adoption, what it means, what it's about, and how it works, I had opened Pandora's box into a wound of my life that I didn't realize was there. And then, about another week later, I realized I either needed to drop out of school to deal with this so that I could go into intensive therapy, or I could entirely shift my program, shift my studies to a plan I had no intention of going down, and I could study this while working on myself and use the two for some greater purpose or good. And so I talked to the president of the school, I talked to different deans of the school, and we were able to pull together this program. So I have an individualized master's degree in adoption studies, and my focus is on the trauma of separation between birth mother and child. That encompasses a lot, even though it sounds very uh, intimate, very, very finite. So tonight we're gonna talk about some of the different things that I, as an adoptee, went through. So this is my family. This is the day I came home from the adoption agency. Actually, I came home from a foster family. I, for two weeks, I lived with my, my, adopt, my birth mother for about three months. She gave me up, and I lived with a foster family for about two weeks, and then my family got the call and came and picked me up. So this is the first night home, and there's something very important about this picture. Not only does it look like a happy family, here's a proud mother and a proud father, and an older sister who may have felt indifferent, may have been excited, may have been angry. There's a lot of emotions that could have come along for her in having an adopted child come into the house overnight. And she's also adopted. So her story is affected and impacted by this as well. But the most important thing I want you to see about this picture is that I'm three months old in my mother's arms. I don't have a picture of me in my life prior to this moment. Most people have a picture of them in the hospital where aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers are holding them and cradling them. Most people have the stories of when you were first born, you peed on the doctor or you did something. And I don't have those stories. They are a part of my history that I do not have access to. And it's important to note that because it's important to note that an adoptee has a history prior to being adopted. So here I was... This may not be working. All right, we'll just talk then. Thank you. Um, so this is me on my adoption day. A very exciting day. And everything's going great. I've been living with them for about a year now. Uh, just one of the family. I'm fighting with my sister every day and, you know, throwing Cheerios on the floor and doing everything you're supposed to do as a kid. So what could possibly be going wrong? Life was great. I was adopted. We were officially a family. The dream was true. My family told us, my sister and I, ever since we were children, that we were adopted. We always knew that we were adopted. And there was never a time that we didn't know. And the thing with, the thing with not knowing, this is going to be difficult, the thing with not knowing is that you appear like you're happy. Everything seemed wonderful. Everything seemed great. And it was. But there's things that people didn't know. There's part of me that I didn't even know was there. So here I was, this happy child, this happy family. We were a happy family. We took the Christmas card pictures, 
Everybody's going along great. Everybody thinks we're assimilated. And there's no issue of being adopted. We have adjusted well. <laughs> I'm going to abandon the slideshow here in a second. Um, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> um, we can go ahead and just kill that. I'll just talk for a few minutes. Um, so here I was, this little child, and everything was supposed to be great. I was adopted, and I knew that, and there were questions about it from friends and family, but did it matter? Did it impact my life? And there are things that happened in my life that I realize now it did, but at the time, I had no idea. When I was a child and I went to spend the night at a friend's house, I could never do it. It wasn't possible for me to spend the night at the house. I would go over, we would make popcorn, we would eat pizza, we would play games, we'd do everything that normal kids would do. And then, it would get time to be bed. The lights would go off, or we would be sent to the bedroom, and panic would strike me. In my gut, I had fear beyond belief. I couldn't identify it, I couldn't name it. I had no idea what it was. It wasn't until 35 years later that I realized what that panic was. It was the fear that when I went home in the morning, my parents would not be there. That they would be gone. Why is that fear there? Why of my life, this perfect life, this family that's been there together since three months of age, would that happen? It's because of the trauma from the separation of my mother. It's a deep and ingrained part of who we are. I was afraid they weren't going to be there when... I came home the next morning. I was afraid nobody was going to pick me up from school that day. I was afraid that I didn't matter. I was afraid that though I was in this family of people who loved me, extended family, aunts and uncles and cousins, people all over in my life that loved me and adored me and cherished me, and I felt entirely alone. And it's hard to think of a little three, four, five, six, seven-year-old child feeling this way. Why would that be so if they're living in a life that they're so alone? So you see this picture. That's how I felt inside. I was scared to death. I was constantly reaching out for something. Somebody make me safe. Somebody make me whole. Somebody fill this hole inside of me. But of course, I couldn't say any of that or articulate all that. And the message that we've all been taught for decades about adopted kids is that they won't know. What will a tiny baby know? They're too young to know the difference. The one thing I can tell you, clearly, without a doubt, in my life, is that what a baby knows is his mother. See, what we miss is the trauma that the child has gone through by being separated from his mother. We also miss the trauma that the birth mother has of separating from their child. We're missing all these cues of sadness around us. All these cues of sadness and hurt and pain. And the sadness and hurt and pain, not only of the child and the mother, but of the adopted family. This same trauma affects all of these people. These parents, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They have a child that they love more than anything on this earth, and they don't understand where this pain and this reaction and the frustration is coming from. They don't know what to do with it. So here's one broken trauma, one trauma of broken attachment. A mother and child falling apart from each other, being torn away from each other. And that trauma carries over into the adoptive family. Trauma is like a butterfly effect. It goes on and on and on. So let's define what trauma is. What is trauma? Trauma is two key things that have to go together. Trauma is an experience or an event that a person perceives, only perceives, does not have to be real, but perceives that their life or safety is in danger. 
So to a child, the only person they've known for the nine months of gestation, for the few months or few days or minutes after being born, is this person, this one woman who is now gone. They're now traumatized with the loss of that person. Their safety is threatened. What's going to take care of me now? How will I survive now? And in addition to that, that experience has to be an experience that the nervous system does not know how to contextualize. Well, for an infant, that's almost everything. So when you take the safety being threatened and contextualized fear, you have adoption trauma. This was first popularized in the 1990s by Nancy Newton Verrier. She wrote the book Primal Wound. And it was probably what changed the entire world's perception on adoption, and it's so slow for people to buy into this, that adoptees have an issue or a trauma or a problem. And they do, they have a hurt and they have a pain, and they have a loss. And the most important thing I want to talk to you about today is not that this is a victim situation or a pain situation, it's an awareness situation. So how do we know how tra adoption trauma looks in life? It comes out in the form of anger. It comes out in the form of anger and frustration and acting out. It comes out in abuse and addiction cycles, going around and around. A large majority percentage of adoptees have some form of addiction or addiction problem. It comes out in, uh, go to the next slide, please. It comes out in broken relationships. So we see people who are adopted growing up and they have anger issues or they're acting out as children or they end up in an addiction cycle or they have broken relationship after broken relationship and that's not just romantic. That's broken with siblings, it's broken with parents, it's broken with teachers and coworkers. So here's all these broken people. But the thing that people don't see, and they're kind of obvious, so if they have these problems, we might not be able to identify it as adoption, but we go, well, this person has a problem in life, right? But what if the child's a straight-A student? What if the child is entirely about pleasing others, codependence, or a people pleaser, wanting to do what is right and what is good all the time, just so people will notice you and you won't be left alone? How do we recognize that? And then we also see a lot of adoptees who end up going into very long-term relationships, if not lifelong relationships that last forever, but they are distant and they are set apart, and they are unable to be intimate with each other, and that doesn't mean intimate sexually. It means intimate in each other's lives. See, they have a broken attachment, and when that broken attachment is broken from their birth mother, if it's not healed properly, it becomes nearly impossible to attach to anybody else in your lifetime. There's also something called the Savior Syndrome. I spoke about this about myself when I just said I had to go get my degree and become something special and do something with it. It's the idea that an adoptee has to earn their worth in this world. If I don't do something great and profound and life-changing, then I did not earn my place in this family, in this relationship, or on this earth. And it's a profoundly, profoundly painful way to live, constantly trying to earn your worth. And where do we see it? We see all these in every average, normal American family, adopted family. All that pain, all that chaos that I just spoke of is in that family in that photo. And nobody saw it. Nobody was taught to see it. And adoptees now are walking around in their relationships and they're in people what they love more than anything on this earth. We can just hold that slide there for a while. 
anything on this earth. They love this person. They will do anything for them. And they are hurting them and destroying them, not by their choice, but because they have no other way to, to work in this world. Because a little trigger, like the, their husband coming home 10 minutes from work, sends them into a panic that he's never coming home again. It is, they're now in trauma response and they're reacting to a trauma. And when you're reacting to a trauma, you cannot react sanely. You cannot contextualize, you cannot rationalize the situation. And it is helpable. Helpable, that's not a word. We are able to help these people, but we have to identify it. We have to teach adoptive parents what to look for in their children and how to parent them. We have to teach people in relationships how to recognize it and not engage it and how to manage around it. We have to teach people who are adopted how to manage it. And all these things are true not only for adoptees, but birth families, adoptive families, grandparents, cousins, uncles, on all sides. See, here's the thing. There's a statistic that one in every 15 people or so has a direct adoption story. That is not an exact statistic. Don't go quoting that. Somewhere in that range, about one in every 15 people has a direct adoption link, meaning they are adopted, they have a sibling who is adopted, something along those lines. But then the statistic goes down to about one in four that everybody, of, out of everybody who has some type of adoption story. And that's referring to grandparents, cousins, in a relationship with somebody. I think the statistic's even lower than that because it's what I call the three-door down theory. Three doors down when I was growing up, there was a kid who was adopted. The impact of having a kid three doors down when you're growing up that is adopted will impact your life. It may be minor, it may be large, but it will impact your life. So what do I do? Why do I bring this to you today? And that's a very broad, huge overview of what I normally will offer in a seminar like this. But I just kind of want to touch on the idea that this is a discussion we have to have, and I love that for the next hour or so, we're going to have this discussion, if I can keep my microphone on. So the next hour or so, we're going to actually have this discussion, which is going to be great. But the important thing is that we have this discussion. So what I do is I talk to people. I have adoptees and adoptive families and birth families in my office all the time and counsel them and help them navigate and help them recognize adoption trauma reactions. And I also educate mental health professionals. And I teach them how to look for this in their office, how to help people with adoption attachment issues and adoption trauma issues. And I certify them in how to, be, in how to work with adopted children. So my work is very focused on making a difference. And the biggest difference we can have and that I can make is that we just have a conversation about it. So I thank you for listening, and we'll get to some questions now. Thanks. Okay. Would you join me in thanking Carl for his presentation? Thank you. We have a, a number, of, uh, number of questions here. Could we talk just briefly before we move to the, the questions? When you speak of a trauma response, mm -hmm. could we un unveil that a little bit? Talk a little more specifically what that means, a trauma response, sure. maybe even a little bit of the biology, what happens here? Absolutely. So the way trauma works in the brain, when we're born, the only part of our brain that's developed is the amygdala. And that is the reptilian part of the brain that is responsible for fight or flight. You've heard, all heard of that. So basically, if you're in a life-threatening situation, you, this is the part of the brain that's going to save your life. Now, because it's the only part of the brain that is developed when we are born, it's the only part of our brain to store any type of memory from those younger ages. And the memory that it does store is trauma or threatening memory. 
for its own survival. So when a child is separated from birth mother, at three months when I was separated from my birth mother, I didn't, I, mom was gone. I didn't know if she had died. I didn't know if she had passed away. I didn't know if she just didn't want to talk to me anymore. I had no idea what it was. But to me, my safety is threatened by definition of the trauma we had earlier, and there's a trauma here. And what that is, is that's stored in the amygdala, okay? And it's stored there for a lifetime. Now, as we grow older and our neocortex develops in our brain, which is our rational thinking part of our brain, as that develops, that becomes where we are able to, to put things in context in the world. We're able to see if something is really safe or not. But every bit of information that comes into our lives, whether it's a car passing you on the street or somebody coming up to say hi to you at church on Sunday, every bit of information in your life first passes through the amygdala as a filter. If it senses that whatever this is is a threat to safety, it will hold on to it and not let it go into your rational part of your brain. It will immediately react thinking its life is threatened. So, when I'm in a relationship and my girlfriend doesn't call me for 10 minutes longer than she said she would, I am now, my filter says, somebody's leaving you. Your safety is threatened. And it holds on to it. And it never gets into the rational part of my brain. So I then react with adoption or trauma reaction. You see this in children when you see them acting out, you see them get angry. You might see mom or dad leaving to go to a movie or a date night while the child is left at home. You might see that um, there's a sibling and mom's paying more attention to one sibling tonight because of homework or an illness than the other. And they'll get angry and they'll act out and they'll lash out or they'll become entirely compliant. And this is the difficulty is to watch that it can go either way. It's not just one or the other. So the trauma reaction is this place in, is your body and your nervous system reacting to keep you safe and alive, and it's working on its own. There's no control over it. It's working on its own to keep you safe. And until you can get it into the rational part of the brain, you're locked into reacting however it's gonna tell you to react. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, so that's why even a, a child that is yet born is reacting or responding to his or her world. Absolutely. And as taking in that information, that's what you were suggesting, um, and it is impacted by that. So the, the first question that is, 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 is being asked here is related to um, grandparents in the sense, the question is raised, do children raised by grandparents have adoption issues? You've probably been asked that before. Yeah. Do children raised by grandparents have adoption issues? And if so, what are they? Yeah, absolutely, they do. There's a lot of little dynamics that go into what is going to, how that's going to impact the child. The great thing about that situation is if it, your child cannot be raised by the actual biological parents, being raised by a biological relative is the next best ideal, so to speak. So the grandparents is going to be great. However, it's still not mom. No matter how you look at it, it's still not mom. So if mom's entirely out of the picture for whatever reason that may have caused that, mm -hmm. if mom's out of the picture, there's still a separation that happened regardless of who is raising them. The person raising them gives them more answers to their history, more idea about where they come from. They're able to look in somebody's face and see somebody who looks similar to them. I've never seen anybody who looks like me, who shared a smile, who has my eyes, nothing. So um, it's going to be better, but they're still going to have reaction. They're still going to have some form of separation trauma just simply because mom is gone. Now, if mom is 
intermittent. There are sometimes, there are not times, then we're dealing with a whole other layer of issue. So what you're going to see is their reaction is going to be the exact same issue. You're going to see them just reacting in trauma, trying to get attention, trying to get safety, trying to understand what these feelings are that are going inside. And because they can't contextualize these feelings, they're going to react either in compliance or uh, acting out in some way. Okay, so I know you work with a lot of therapists who uh -huh. call and will ask, okay, then how do I help this child who has this trauma, so this separation, not necessarily separation anxiety, but this separation and they're, they're traumatized, what would be steps to help them to be able to embrace, say, that loss, that abandonment, that sense of not feeling safe. Right. The most important thing to do is, I think we, when we have children, is our tendency is to train them into the proper behavior. So we discipline them to when their behavior is wrong. And that's the model we've known for years, and mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of great things about that model. But the thing I think we get misrepresented on is uh, discipline we've actually interchanged with the word to punish. Whereas discipline, actually it's a biblical word, it's disciples to teach or to be taught. So we want to teach the child. So if there's a child, I used this example earlier today, mm -hmm. if they're coloring on the wall and you, know, you just paint the wall and it's going to cost you a lot of money to, to fix this and they've just destroyed this wall. So we can react by punishing them, don't do that. Okay, and that would be appropriate. But if you're going to them saying, don't do that, what you're saying is whatever feelings motivated you to do that are bad and wrong. So what this child's going to do is they're going to suppress those feelings and go hide them and not know what to do with them. So their behavior may be modified whether they don't color on the wall anymore, but the emotion and the reason and the pain and the fear as to why they did it in the first place has not been dealt with. So a more appropriate approach may be to go to them and say, wow, that's a lot of coloring on the wall. You, you, you must have really been upset that I was making dinner instead of paying attention to you. Or were you really angry that I was gone for the last two days on a business trip? And when you can try to identify the child's feelings or emotions for them, it gives them words and enable uh, an ability to contextualize what they are feeling that they don't have words for yet. So you're giving them these tools and these words to know I'm angry, which will eventually teach them how to express it in appropriate ways. So you say, wow, you must have been angry and sad, and I, I understand that, you know, that must have been hard for you. We can't color on walls when we're angry. We can't act out like this. So um, why don't we find you another thing that you can do when you're angry? How about you go hit the bed? How about you go um, you know, draw on this paper in a you know, really aggressive or go play the drums or whatever you're going to do? But you give them an alternative on how to express this emotion. So as opposed to punishing and shaming for it, you're redirecting. And at the same time, you're correcting the behavior. And a lot of times that they will continue to do that behavior or that issue, now we're dealing with another issue, problem that we want to try to help correct in a little bit different way. But identifying those emotions for them and then redirect them is going to help them tremendously. And you can certainly you know, let them know this is not okay. But it's, it's how you approach it as to whether you're going to reinforce that pain that they're trying to work out or you're going to actually help them process it. So the punishment is reinforcing the pain, which then causes it to cycle and ruminate rather than discipling. Uh, exactly. It's, it's helping them to teach, to, helping them to understand it. Right. Um, yes. So when, when you're working with a child that's, that's learning that, um, what are some techniques that other techniques like play therapy? You mentioned that today. Play yeah. therapy would be, and 
actually parents or grandparents can do play therapy with with their children or their grandchildren. What, what, what is that about? You talked a little bit about that today. Sure. The, the idea and the concept behind play therapy is that that's the only place a child knows how to process their world. So, um, of course, there's amazing play therapists out there, and we definitely would love to see some children who are having issues in their life go to see a play therapist to help process their world. Because our brain, when, it's, when we are born, it thinks in pictures, it doesn't think in words. It doesn't think in words until we tell it and we teach it to think in words. So in order for them to process their life, which they see and think of in words, they need to do it, or in pictures, they need to see it and do it in a picture form, as with toys. And, and figurines and different things that represent what's going on in their life. And the amazing thing about children is you don't have to tell them how to do this. They know how to do it. They will do it instinctually. The most important thing is to just let them and not direct them in their play. When they're playing, just let them do what they're going to do. Let them go wherever they're going to go. The reason a play therapist is so amazing is because they have a space that they can go and they know they can do anything they want. At home, we have to keep boundaries so that it's not totally possible. But if we just give them the space, they'll do it. We had an example uh, today where um, a woman was, has a child who's acting out from uh, a lot of his adoption trauma and she doesn't know what to do with it. And when he's in this chaotic mode of anger and aggression, the only thing that helps him is when she gives him a puzzle or Legos or something like that that's going to help him to, to t takes his focus. Her idea and concept was close. It, the idea was that she's going to pull his focus off of whatever he's upset about onto something else. And we do that a lot. We'll say, hey, watch a movie. Here's an ice cream cone. Here's whatever, right? But it's actually not the changing of the focus of what's in their mind. It's that she gave him the tools, the puzzle and the Legos, she gave him the tools to process what he was angry and frustrated about. Go ahead. I was going to say, so one of the great things about play therapy is that as you're, say, playing with uh, your, your child or they're playing or they're working on Legos or something like this or they're expressing it through dolls or mm -hmm. uh, trucks, cars, uh, other expressions, that you're letting them speak through the toy. You're letting them express that emotion through that experience. So sometimes even a play therapist, um, I'll often do this and say, oh, so uh, Johnny is moving the truck in the sand. And then uh, in a sense expressing what I believe is the therapist we're seeing the child do. That's a very simple form of play therapy that actually you can do with children and mm -hmm. grandchildren. But the point you're making is not to just redirect, but provide an opportunity where they can re-express, perhaps. Exactly. That's, that's what you're... Right. So instead of the expression, the anger, and the aggression, which are all the bad behaviors we don't want, it's giving them the tools to express in the way that makes sense to them, and they can rationalize what just happened or what they're going through. Mm -hmm. It's very helpful, even with uh, children that are not adopted, if we can park for just a moment, Carl, on the idea of the difference between punishing and discipline, or this discipleship piece. Because we as parents oftentimes want to stop something that is out of control, sure. or they could be hurt, or hurt someone else. Children oftentimes really push the boundaries. <laughs> what are some other steps that you've advised, say therapists, parents, families, uh, particularly with adoptees, of course, but uh, in helping that child um, 
feel as though they're being uh, disciplined and not punished because right. we oftentimes default to punishment as parents. Absolutely. And it's a difficult balance. And I'm certainly, if your child is, going to, is doing something that is dangerous, we want to stop them immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's not the, the issue. And even the immediate reaction, there's a lot of focus on immediate reaction, whether you're yelling or angry or what's that. Of course, yelling is not always the best option. But the idea is that once we've eliminated the threat, the child is not going to hurt himself. And it is now about helping him verbalize those feelings or process those feelings, discussing what they must be feeling. Like I said before, labeling the words, you must have felt sad, you must feel angry, you must feel hurt. Whenever a child's acting out in anger or aggression, it doesn't have to be anger, but aggression, it's a masking emotion for something that's underneath. So when we can identify what's underneath, we're teaching them to understand what's going on underneath. So it's mostly just an idea of the, it's having the conversation with the child afterwards. Sometimes a child will just make you so angry, you don't want them near you because then their safety is really threatened. You don't want to be near them. But that, and that's fine. You can, you can, I hate to say you can step away from an adopted child because it actually, it gets a little more complicated like that. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing is that you come back to have the conversation. That's vital. If you're able to sit in it in a minute and then have that conversation, that's a great option too. You keep talking about that, and it's such a great statement. You mentioned that earlier with our staff, the idea of conversation, to come back to the conversation. Why is that so important for the adoptee? Well, I think it's so important for the adopted child because what they're dealing with is a pain and emotion that is so deep Mm -hmm. that they have no idea how to verbalize it. Mm -hmm. They don't have the language for it. Mm -hmm. And even if they had the actual words, they wouldn't know how to tie those words to what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So when we can say their words for them and when we can have the conversation, we're letting them know that discussing these things is safe and Mm -hmm. it's okay and it's healthy. And we're letting them know that uh, we understand their feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. and that we still accept them and love them even Mm -hmm. though they're having these emotions and feelings. So that that piece of it is vital for their safety. And in addition to just the conversation, there needs to be, you know, uh, affection and touching Mm -hmm. and a lot of safety. Now, it depends on what the child is allowing at the moment, of course, but we definitely want them to know that no matter what their behavior was, what happened, nothing has changed how much you care, love, and they are safe. And the more immediate you can present that, the safer they're going to feel, which is going to help them attach to the relationship better. So that care and safety, which you've mentioned several times, is important. Probably important to say that right up front in a discussion because they already have fear uh, even in the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. More often than not, when an adopted child is reacting to anything, they're reacting and they are, the reason they're reacting is because they're afraid they're going to be left whether it's by you or somebody else or whatever situation. So the immediate, the more immediate you can say you're safe, I love you, you're not going, we're not going anywhere, you're totally fine, and reinforce all of that. The more you can reinforce that in the very beginning, it allows them to ease that fear a little bit so that then they can actually have the conversation about the behavior. Give us some language about that. Can we say, you know, I'll always be here for you? What are some, what are some language uh, words that would be helpful to I, the adopted child? I'm glad you brought that up because you do have to be careful about this. Because if you say, I'll always be here for you, we hear that as a very warm and loving statement. Mm-hmm. But what the child may hear is, if you will always be here for me, then you may also leave. So it's just a reinforcement of safety and love. It's a reinforcement of, of I love you so much, and, and no matter what you do, my love for you doesn't change, even when you're upset and even when you're angry. And I'm not going, nothing you can do is going to change how much I, I care about you and how 
much I always want you to be here with me and doing this with me, or how much you are a part of your dad and I, how much your dad and I love you, and any language you can do to frame it in this, you belong to this, and no matter what, you belong here. So it's also another delicate balance not to make it sound like you belong to this family, as in you didn't at one time. So you want to phrase it as, we love you and we're not going anywhere. You, we are, I keep saying that, don't I? We love you and, and you're safe and we, nothing's going to change about how we feel. Nothing's going to change about this. We're upset that you made this action, but that doesn't change how much we love you. And it is, it's a delicate balance that can go either way. And nobody's going to do it perfectly. I don't even do it perfectly explaining it. Mm-hmm. But just being willing to have those conversations. So it's right. really important, yeah, it's really important then how we as parents or grandparents or caregivers uh, respond to the adopted child. Mm-hmm. In other words, if I'm finding that child frustrating, um, how I react or respond to the child's very significant, particularly because of the trauma that, of which you're speaking. Exactly. Well, one of our classic behavior models nowadays is we do timeouts with children. Mm-hmm. You made a mistake, and we're going to put you in timeout. You're going to sit on the couch, on the stairs, or wherever your timeout corner is for five minutes. And we can argue the discussion on how appropriate that is for all children, mm-hmm. but for a chi- child who has a broken attachment, the worst thing you can do is send them away. You're telling them that they are bad, they're wrong, and when they make a mistake, they're not worth loving or worth being near, and that they have to go away for it. So you're reinforcing this sense of, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, and so the idea is, very simple, do a time in. You did this, and that's not okay, and now you need to come sit next to me for five minutes, and you can't play, you can't do anything else, you need to sit here for five minutes. What you're doing is you're bringing the child closer to you, you're showing them that you're not going anywhere, but there's also a consequence to the action. Okay, yeah. So they're learning to self-regulate, which is one of the important pieces, that their own emotion, if they can somehow begin to manage that in a better way. Right. Yes. This, this next question um, asks about a, an adopted child who is at a distance. So what can we do about an adopted child who is on his own, but he may have bipolar? That's the question. What can we do about an adopted child who is on his own, but he may have bipolar. That gets more complicated as the question goes on, doesn't it? (laughs) It's a very tough question, Um, yes. I'm going to assume that we're talking an adult child or a child that um, has been, is off of college or something of the sort, moved out on his life. Otherwise, I would have to have another conversation as to why they're not at home at a younger age. Right, let's assume that, yes. So so assume adult child. Um, So, it's the first part of the question is they have the adoption issues and they're not at home, so you don't have the ready access to them. The most important thing then is the contact and the relationship. It's again the safety, it's again knowing that they're there, uh, and it's also, even at the adult age, it's identifying emotions and feelings that are coming up. And I'm glossing over that part for a minute because I want to get to the bipolar point. Okay. A lot of times, we see people who have uh, adoption or trauma issues, not a lot of times, sometimes, who are bipolar or have been labeled as children as ADD or ADHD or some other malady. And it's very possible that these are very true issues. Um, When you have something like this, like bipolar happening, it's like any trauma situation or any chaotic situation, and you don't know where to fix things. How do I fix this big problem? You start where you stand. You start with the biggest issue that's in front of you. And in that situation, the biggest issue that's in front of you is the, is the bipolar. bipolar. So because until that is managed, then there's no way to help the rest of it. 
because it will take him so out of the cycle that as much of this loving stuff I'm telling you and tenderness and kindness and proper words, it's not going to help the situation when you have somebody who's in such extremes. So the bipolar almost masks some of the trauma or a lot of the trauma is what you're saying to I a degree. I don't think it necessarily masks it, but mm -hmm. it overrides it. Mm -hmm. So they're in trauma reaction and trauma response, but their trauma response is through the lens mm -hmm. of this bipolar. That's through the lens of these extremes that, that people with this, that suffer from this, deal with. So when they're seeing it through that lens, mm -hmm. you have to kind of fix that lens before you can deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not really that it masks it. it, it may magnify it, it may minimize it, but it's not giving them an accurate reflection of what's going on. So whatever the situation is, we have to manage that before we can get to the deeper underlying issues. And that's gonna be the same with ADD, ADHD, any other of the issues that we put on kids these days. Okay, and you did talk about uh, being aware of the emotions behind it. You said you, you sidestepped that for just a moment, I think. I, yeah, I did sidestep that because I want to make, make that point of how important it is to see that. However, let's say that we have that managed and there's an issue, and of course it's never fully managed. You know, it's one of those things that you kind of struggle with throughout life. Um, but coming back to the emotions of it, the idea is just the safety that you're there for them, that they have a place to go. If they're off at college or off trying to start their own life, it's a very difficult thing to let go of this one safety to go start on your own. It's something that at that age, uh, an adoptee knows they need to do and they want to do, but there's a fear of ever letting go of what has held on to you for 20 years. So it's, it's a lot of the same conversations, and sadly they don't change. It's just the reinforcing the idea that we're here for you, we're proud of you, we think you're amazing, and it's a lot of the reinforcing to encourage them to go. Just like you would with someone you love and care about, a spouse or anybody else, you encourage them to go and pursue their passions and dreams, and that you believe in them to no end. Not that they can do no wrong, but you believe in them to no end. There is no, I, I believe you can do anything. I believe you can you know, be the CEO of the company. I believe you can be president of the United States. I believe you can be the best race car driver there is. Whatever the dreams are, that I have 100% faith that you can accomplish this because they need to know that there's somebody in the corner who has their back, is behind them 1,000% of the time with no hesitations or doubts. When you start in the, oh yeah, well you were never really good at that. All of a sudden, I hear, what that person hears is, I'm not good enough and I never will be good enough and I might as well not try anything. And it seems like such an extreme, but it, it, it's, that's the reaction they're gonna have, is that why try if my own mother and father don't believe in me? The people who raised me don't even think I can do this. So it really minimizes their emotional strength to go and challenge other things in life. That's what you were saying earlier then, Carl, that um, an adopted child may well be compelled to try to be the CEO, to be in <clears throat> charge, to, to, to somehow prove to themselves something that should have been given to them very early in life that is missing, if I'm hearing you correctly. Well, yeah, and that's the savior syndrome that you're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, yeah, the savior syndrome is going to be huge, and they're going to aim, and it's kind of interesting that I chose CEO and president as opposed to something a little bit more realistic, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and that's the idea, is that we think we have to accomplish these amazing things to, to be worth or valued. Uh, to earn our place in the world. So it may be as simple as, uh, you know, working at the guitar factory and being, you know, great at whatever it is. It doesn't have to be this accomplished thing. But with the savior syndrome as I have it is, uh, 
is definitely a very important piece that I think we overlook in the whole adoption issue. Uh, a little further on, a few more years, when this conversation becomes more normal, that's going to, I think, become the next major part of the conversation. And the reason I say that is, even biblically, since we're um, here tonight, is we look at Moses. Moses is like the quintessential earthly example of adoption. So he was given up by his mom because his mom wanted a better life for him or he was going to be killed. He goes down the river. He's taken in as a family. And he's not just taken in, he's taken in by the king. And, you know, his, and he's, what does he accomplish? He saves his people. He parts a Red Sea. And he is the, the soothsayer for the Ten Commandments. Mm. Well, who, who can live up to that? And the other interesting thing is that we as a society reinforce the savior syndrome. Mm. If you look at our superheroes, pretty much every superhero comes from either, they're either adopted, abandoned, orphaned, Superman's from Krypton. Mm. And you go down the list, Batman I think was orphaned. I mean, I don't, I'm not really into superheroes. But we <laughs> have this, this sense in our stories, in our movies, in our books of this child who has nothing and came from nothing and then went on to accomplish great things. And these subtle cues that society is saying to adoptees and to birth mothers in their own right and adoptive families in their own right, these subtle cues are what are causing a lot of the damage is because we don't realize that we're setting these people up that they have to accomplish something great. There's a movie out right now. It's called Philomena. And I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's um, Judy Dench, I believe, is the lead character in it, or the lead actress in it. And it's a, it's a true story of a boy who's adopted out of Ireland and comes to America. And it's about the story of his birth mother spending her life trying to find him. But he actually, and in real life, ended up being a high-level advisor to President Reagan. So he had this sense, his entire his drive, his entire life, to accomplish value and worth in huge things. And so it's a great example, a real-life example, of, of, of somebody living out that message. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, this, this next question... Uh, talks a little bit, unless you, did you want to talk any no, more please, about that? That if, if a pregnant teenager chooses to give up her child in lieu of an abortion, wouldn't the child, when they become 18, when, realize that they were given life first and not view it as being passed off? Wouldn't it comfort the child to know that the mother giving him or her up would have been acting in the child's best interest? I love that question. It's an, ama it's an amazing question that we deal with um, on all levels. That impacts all the members of the triad. And it's a difficult one to answer because wouldn't a child know? As an adult, I know that the era I was born in in 1972, that we're dealing with abortion issues and dealing with a lot of other issues as to why I may or may not have been born and was ultimately given up for adoption. So... The story I know for my life is absolutely, it was the best decision for me. So I know a child who's dealing with a situation like that, amazing, and thank you, and how selfless and loving of you. And I can say that, and I think pretty much every other adoptee out there can say the same thing, thank you. It's an amazing, amazing gift and selfless act you did that I could never imagine the pain of what you had to go through and would not want to know that pain. And... As a child, mom gone is mom gone. And the wound that is created at the point of separation, regardless of how worthy and justified and honorable it is, when mom is gone to that child, 
they don't know the difference. So the wound is created for a lifetime that they now have to deal with. The trauma is there that they now have to work through. Even though as we get older, we can contextualize and understand on a very intellectual level, absolutely, amazing blessing, amazing gift, absolutely. And I still have this wound and this trauma that has tainted my entire life that I have to figure out how to manage. So one does not negate the other. They're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about this idea of attachment, because you've mentioned it several times, and of course we read in this area, both you and I do, on probably daily basis. Help us to understand, what is this attachment all about? Is it sort of like the fifth commandment that says, honor your father and mother? You know, that there's this connection that almost can't be described, and yet it's so significant and so wonderful. Talk to us, what does it mean, this attachment to, say, the mother? Wow. Really? <laughs> Describe <laughs> attachment. Okay. Well, the meaning of life. Right, um, right, right. It's... In three words. Right, or less, yes. three words or less. <laughs> so, attachment. Basically, in simplified my belief system, one of the main reasons we're all here is connection and relationship. And it's relationship where we feel safe and connected. And we have somebody there. And we know how to share life. And it's something that we all strive for just as a primary part of being. And attachment is formed from, in my belief, the the moment of conception. It's starting the process of getting to know each other. So what attachment is, is it's not necessarily just being close to somebody and knowing somebody or even sharing your life with them intimately, which it can be and it is. True attachment is the symbiotic relationship that you have that is as close to being one as possible. So we know a lot of marriages and relationships that are like that. And there's no perfect relationship, of course, but you get to know each other so well. You know each other's thoughts. You know what move they're going to make you next. You know what they're going to say before they say it, and it makes you angry because they haven't said it yet, but they're going to say it, and I'm just upset about it. And so you know somebody so well, and you're attached to that person because you're, you're in this fluid movement of going through life together. Well, that starts when we're born through the attachment with our mother. They've done studies where they can take the blood of a woman who has given birth to a male child, and in her blood, they can find the Y chromosome. Obviously, there, shouldn't be one, be, there should not be one there. The reason she has one is because her, in her blood for the rest of her life will be some of his blood. And vice versa, in him or in her female child, her blood will be there forever. So the attachment and bond is so close and so tight and so primal to who we are that it's what we fight for the rest of our lives. Every fight you get in in a relationship... Every disagreement you get in a relationship, every disagreement you have with a coworker at work, though it might be over the file that wasn't right, what it's really about and comes down to is the broken attachment with this person or uh, trying to find some way to connect with this person. So when attachment is broken, the mother and child are separated at birth. And this can happen in a lot of ways. I get it. It can happen in death of a parent. It can happen in adoption. It can happen in a parent going away at, when the child's young in a hospital stay for an extended period of time and the child doesn't have access to the child. Mother never leaves their life, but there's a broken attachment there this child now has to deal with. And so once that broken attachment is broken, it can, we cannot attach, like I said earlier, to anybody else until that first attachment is healed. It doesn't mean it has to be healed completely. It doesn't mean that it has to be healed and polished and all shiny and it's never an issue anymore. 
but the healing fragments, the pieces have to have started to have been glued together before the safety could ever be formed to attach to somebody else. Is that kind of where you're heading with that? Yeah, that, I know it's a, it was a huge question. I, yeah. I, I, is that, so this, this, idea of, um, this idea of attachment and the broken attachment um, and the healing, are, are you talking about grief work? Then will this child who maybe becomes an adult, are they needing to do a, a large element of, of grief? How, how do you do those repairs? What do you do? Absolutely. Everybody in the triad needs to go through grief work. Adoptees need to go through grief work. Birth families need to go through grief work. Adoptive families need to go through grief work. And it's the most overlooked thing. And part of the problem is that nobody knows that there's something to grieve. Mm -hmm. Nobody's told that they're allowed to grieve it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's given the space and safety and tools to grieve it. Mm -hmm. There's a loss. Anytime we have a loss in life, we have to be allowed the space to grieve it mm -hmm. and to go through the stages of grieving. And so if it was, for me, I didn't start this work till I think I was 36 or 37. When I started this work, um, I had to go back and grieve what had happened all those years ago. Hmm. And that I didn't know was there, that I didn't know I was allowed to grieve, because I, what I'd also heard my whole life was, um, oh, you should be grateful. You have an amazing family, an amazing life. You should be grateful. Hmm. And I am grateful. Mm -hmm. And I'm hurt. And whenever we tell somebody that your hurt doesn't matter, you should be grateful, or your hurt is less than your appreciation should be, we're shaming them, mm -hmm. we're tearing them down, and we're hindering their healing. We need to allow both. It's amazing that you had this life, and wow, that must have hurt. And so to get anybody in the process into this grief work is amazing. My suggestion is no matter what age you are, whether you're, it's a child up to elderly adults, gets you into therapy with somebody who knows and understands broken attachment or adoption work. And that's one of the reasons I do the certification I do, is I want people to truly understand adoption trauma to work with people. But get in there and start the grieving, start working through it, because the freedom and the healing that comes from it mm -hmm. is actually fairly quick and can be life-changing. The, the healing adoption trauma is more long-term, but the grief work is not something that's mm -hmm. unending. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, it's that validation of feelings, which is so significantly important, which actually the adopted child did not receive early on. Is, am I hearing that? Depending upon when they were adopted or how early it that was? That they didn't receive what? They, they didn't receive validation of their emotion from the caregiver, the primary caregiver. Often, and it's mm -hmm. difficult, you know, to, to give that to a child, especially when they're pre-verbal and mm -hmm. you're adopting. Uh, one reason why that's so difficult is the adoptive family is so overjoyed to have this child. Mm -hmm. Look at this new member of our family, and they're so excited. Mm -hmm. They're beyond belief excited. For them to shift gears to, wow, you must be scared or you must be sad, is, um, mm. is tremendous. There's no research base behind what I'm about to say, but it's enough that I think it's significant to do. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people about adoption and their adoption stories, and the ones who seem to be most well-adjusted, um, I take special interest in. I want to know how they were raised. I want to know what did their parents do differently, mm. because they still have issues and, and problems, but they seem to have gone through a lot of the work that so many of us never have or are just now going through. And the thing I hear so often in my talk, because it's not talking to them, it's talking to their parents. Their parents say, oh, I just felt so bad for this poor baby. He lost his family. 
I feel bad for this little girl. She, you know, lost her mom and dad. And they feel, they, as much as they were happy, they felt the empathy and pain for this child. So when they were holding or rocking or the child's crying in the middle of the night, she said, I would s- just say, oh, I know you miss your mama. Mm. Oh, I know, I know. Mm. And just even though the child's pre-verbal and, you know, a few months old, I believe that that form of verbalizing what they're feeling, even at that young age, gives them the tools to start allowing the grief process and the healing to where I see later in life they're, they're different in a different place. I'm not saying it's all fine and dandy, but they're in a much different place. Very good. Thank you. I want to move to another question. What do you think of open adoption? <laughs> open adoption. I think we're about 20 years away from knowing what open adoption actually does. Mm-hmm. I think we're about 20 years away from knowing how people who, have, who adoptees of open adoption, what, they, what it's done to the adoptee, what it's done to the birth family, what it's done to the adoptive family. Could we first, please. could we explain what adoptee, yeah, Do you want open to, adoption is? If you just yeah, please sure. feel free to go to yeah. yeah, open adoption is generally speaking when the adoptive family agrees with the birth family to create an environment where the adoptive or the birth family has access to the child. Whether it's through visitation or they're just a net part of their lives and they're coming to birthday parties or they get to see them once a year or maybe they mail letters once a year. It can be anything in between. It's about the agreement between the two families. Um, so there is no definitive this is what it is clear and cut because it can be any combination of what it looks like and often throughout the child's life it will mold and change. Um, so I think we're 20 years away from seeing how that actually impacts the child and my instinct, and from the work I've seen, I don't think it's the magic answer we think it is lately. And I'm not saying I would cut it off or stop it immediately. But for example, when I was talking to another woman who, um, she sets up open adoptions and facilitates those. And so they set up the sequence where at the first week, the birth mother comes over and holds the child and loves on the child and it's all nice and they get their time together and she goes away. And two weeks later, she comes back and holds the child and loves the child and visits for the day and goes away. And a month later, and they have this sequence of time where this happens throughout life. And it's an amazing idea. It's an amazing concept. However, at the root of it, I feel like what we're actually doing is making it impossible for the adopted child to begin their healing and the birth mother to heal. Because the, the, we've had the broken attachment. We've had the separation. And so this, for, the, for many, many months, what this child is doing, what this baby is doing is searching for mom. Every face that comes across, every eyes that he looks at, every sound that he hears, he's searching for mom for months on end, searching for mom. So all of a sudden, out of the blue, mom shows up. And, and there may be relief, and there may be excitement, and there may be anger, and there may be a ton of emotions that go on. And then all of a sudden, mom is gone again. And so now he's starting the sequence of going through that. What will then end up happening is that child will then end up creating walls and barriers and protections for himself so that when mom shows up and leaves, there's no pain, but the, or minimal pain. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is it, it almost eliminates the possibility of full attachment to the mm-hmm. adoptive family. Because if this mom leaves, when's this mom going to leave? Uh, I know situations where birth mothers come and they come to birthday parties and Christmas parties and things like this. And again, on the surface, it sounds like such a wonderful idea, but I can just imagine this child in a room with this people who raise and love and nurture and are there when he's sick at two in the morning mm-hmm. and just knows that they're there. But then there's this other woman in the room 
who he may know as mom or may not, this other woman in the room that he or she is drawn to for some inexplicable reason. Well, if I feel so strongly for this person, what does that say about this relationship? And I think that in time to reintroduce that when the child's ready is appropriate. I don't think at those younger ages it's, it's, it's as great as we think it is. I wish it were, I just don't think it is. This is kind of similar to what happened over the years, my university students, they'll be in my office and this is a little off topic, but yet I believe it relates, mm -hmm. Carl. They'll, they'll be in my office and they'll say, when I was passed from one home to the other, I had to go to my mom's for a week and then it was at my dad's for a week. Or I, I was on the weekends with my mom and I was with my dad during the week. And they'll begin to grieve right in front of me. They'll begin to cry and share about the pain because they feel safe in my office, I believe. And they'll begin to grieve the fact that they cannot really attach to either one. Mm -hmm. And they felt disloyal when they would go to one. Is that a similar piece? Because many of us yeah. have, have either experienced that or have family members who have. Yeah, I think that's exactly the piece. It's, there's a loyalty issue that goes in there. There's a conflict of emotions mm -hmm. of who am I allowed to love? I don't want to hurt the people who raised me mm -hmm. and care about me, and I consider mom and dad. I don't want to hurt them by wanting to know this person and caring about this person, but I want to know this person and care about this person. There's something about me that identifies with this person. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely that, that terror that it puts this child who's not... They haven't even understood the loss, much less able to contextualize all these additional feelings we're placing on them. So that's why you said putting up walls. So these, uh, these students that I've watched over the years, they, and of course in my practice as well, my private practice, but seeing them putting up walls and they would say, I just can't really keep a relationship going. I, and, and they would begin to realize they have these walls of protection mm -hmm. because they don't feel, they didn't feel safe. I'm back to your word that you said, feel safe. Right. And the next question actually ties right into this. And right. the question is, do blended families experience the same problems as adopted? Um, I think you're definitely dealing with an issue with blended families. When you have families from, whether it's, you know, a husband and wife, or, and they have their own children from marriages, and they all come together like the Brady Bunch, mm -hmm. um, you're definitely going to have some of this happening. Depending on ages, depending on relationship with uh, the parent who's not there, is going to be a large issue. So there's going to be some sense of it. There's so many factors that are involved at the age of the child at that point and the relationship they have with the child. Anytime you have any type of divorce situation where um, parents are s separating, then you're going to have a child who um, is going to be dealing with that issue. So depending on where they are in that process is how much it's going to impact the family. Mm -hmm. If you have a blended family from uh, a dot, one birth child, uh, natural, like one parent is natural, the other one's adopted, um, there's, there's going to be issues in that. And all that also, again, depends on what's the relationship like with the birth father or mother or whoever's not there. What's that relationship like? Are they gone? Have they disappeared? Is there a death? Is there a total separation? Is there some form of relationship happening? So yeah, a lot of these adoption issues you're going to see are very similar in blended issue families, except for the blended families come from so many different angles that there's so many filters to go through first as to how much it's going to impact you. Mm -hmm. Another question that, that somewhat ties into this, don't you think that very poor and early parent, very poor early parenting also may cause similar trauma or behaviors in the children? In other words, non-adopted children. I know it's a little off topic, but in a way, don't you think very poor and early parenting also may cause similar trauma behaviors in children? 
Yeah, I think that's actually a great question for this event because so, I, so many questions I get is, well, don't all kids act like this? Don't mm. all kids get angry when they're upset? Don't all kids, you know, try to be a good kid and be liked? And yes, they absolutely do. And don't all kids have issues when they grow up? And aren't we all having troubles in relationships? Absolutely. And it's because of our life experiences mm. that we have these issues. And sure, bad parenting can absolutely traumatize a child. And absolutely, a lot of the issues that we're talking about, a lot of the responses I'm talking about are trauma responses. I'm doing it from the lens of adoption or the lens of separation from birth mother and child. But if a child has another trauma in their life, and it may be... Uh, molestation, it may be car accident, it may be death in the family, it can be a lot of different traumas. Any, it can just be abuse. Any other trauma they have, you're going to see a lot of the same things I'm talking about coming out. What you're going to see different is the trigger. And that's the key that we teach parents who have adopted kids. What are we noticing that's triggering the response? So for an adopted child, what's going to trigger the response is the threat of another separation. For a child who is um, sadly dealing with some sort of sexual abuse, you're going to see maybe being left alone with an adult figure or um, somebody who looks like or is the perpetrator. You're going to see a response and a reaction to a different trigger point. Once they are triggered, though, you're in trauma response, and from there on out, it's going to look very similar what the response looks like. So you're a parent and or a grandparent. It's maybe someone here this evening or listening by the live stream streaming that they're trying to back up and notice. So the child's in the room, you're, you're trying to notice their reactivity, their response that is associated perhaps with the sense of abandonment, of, of not being cared for, or someone's going to leave. How would you begin to notice that? What are some practical ways to do that? Just watch your child or watch the, 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 the child as, as they're playing? Or, or The recognition point that I always try to start with is just recognize the child is reacting now. Hmm. Next time they're anger, angry or you know, overly helpful or something's going on, instead of just, oh, he's acting out again, I'm tired mm -hmm. of it, and I gotta, you know, do all these things before the end of the day, instead of being in that, just recognize, wow, maybe this, maybe this is a trauma response. Maybe that's what this is. And you know what? You don't have to go any further at that moment. Because next time, you may notice it sooner. And eventually, the goal is that you just recognize that it's happening, you're able to identify it as a trauma response, and then see what is triggering it. So I wouldn't go home and be staring at your child trying to figure out what's going on. But in time, you're going to start to recognize that, wow, he's, he acts up a lot when, um, when dad's about to get home from work at the mm -hmm. end of the day. Mm -hmm. He really starts to act up. Now, why would a child, an adopted child who has attachment issues start to act up when dad gets home? Well, dad may be a threat to his relationship with mom. Mm. Because when dad gets home, mom focuses on dad and hugs on him and loves on him. And now this child, now mom's not available to him. Or maybe the child's closer to dad. And dad is a much better relationship. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when dad gets home, he's excited that dad's coming home, but he's also scared of the intimacy that having dad there can bring and the threat of dad leaving. So we just start to recognize, oh, it's dad coming home. And then once we recognize what it is, we don't really even need to know why it's dad coming home or why it's mom going to the grocery store. What we recognize is that this is a time that it's happening. Then prior to it happening, we start helping them feel safe before the trigger happens. Hmm. So half hour before dad comes home, hey, dad's coming home in a half an hour and start having the conversation and 
Um, if it's about, you, if you can figure out that it's because he's not getting the amount of attention, then yeah, and, and I'm going to be so excited because when he gets home, the three of us get to play together and the three of us get to sit down to dinner and you're reinforcing you're still important, you're still here, I'm not leaving you for him. And the more you can curb that at the pass before we get to the response, the better time you're going to have with it. So recognize and identify and then try to take some try steps. Try to mitigate. Try yeah. to mitigate to a degree, yes, yeah. with that. Um, as we wind down this evening, I, mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk to, uh, say, a parent or a grandparent, a caregiver, who is really challenged. They're, they're finding themselves really reactive. They are, they're not responding to the child. They're, they're reacting to the anxiety of the child, a lot of which you've spoken of and about this evening. How, how could that person nurture him or herself or find ways to, to, to find nurture so that they as an adult can be more responsive and, and loving and, and caring as you talked about and maybe being present for that child? What, what would you say to them? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, if you are a parent of any child ever in the history of the world, congratulations. <laughs> You're doing one of the hardest jobs out there. And if you are a grandparent of a child, an adopted child, and what's called kinship adoption, if you're that parent, you have an extra burden because now you're, you're raising a second family hmm. and you're in a second situation in life. And the most important thing I can say to anybody that's listening at all tonight is go easy on yourself. You don't need to be perfect. Nobody expects you to be perfect. And you're doing an amazing job already. Even if things I'm sharing tonight, you're realizing, well, I could do this differently or maybe I should have done that differently. There's no should have. As we know better, we do better. Mm -hmm. And so just understand that what an amazing gift that you're being to this child to give them a life and to give them a future and to give them a hope. So the most important first step is just take any guilt hats off that you may have or shame hats and just praise yourself for what you're doing and the work you're doing because it's vital to them and it will show in their life and they need it. And beyond that is, again, just like taking care of yourself or anything. Take care of yourself. Take time for yourself. As much as this is an adopted child and they need you there for their reaction issues, if you are not healthy because you're there or you're burnt out or you're an extreme, you're not going to do them any good. So you find healthy ways to take a time away, to have nights to yourself, to, to, um, to take, really nurture yourself and nurture your soul because the more you can nurture your soul is the more you're going to be able to help them. And I would say this is key. You're dealing with a child who's going to have s some major swings in their life as far as trying to navigate this pain. Any, any trauma situation, navigate this pain. It's the same advice that we give to all therapists. Be doing your own work. If you're not doing your own work, you're not going to be able to help your client. So if you aren't able, if you have challenges in your life or issues or burdens or pains, get some help and work through those and navigate those. To lighten the load on those is going to make you so much more available to the child that you're raising. Thank you so much. Would you join me in thanking Carl Stinsky for being here this evening? And just a fabulous, fabulous discussion and presentation. I want to thank you for being here and thank working you. with my staff earlier today. Um, before we leave, in just a moment, we'll have a word of prayer, but I want to invite you to next month's uh, My Therapist Says. It's going to be the High Octane Marriage by B Bill and Pam Farrell. Uh, they are nationally, if not internationally, known 
in the area of uh, marriage. And so they're going to be with us. You may want to invite someone to join you and, and come and listen. They're both very dynamic, so they'll keep us uh, laughing and uh, on, on the edge of our seats for that entire evening. So thank you for coming this evening. May I have a word of prayer, and we will honor God again for his presence here in each of our lives and the gift of adoption. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for, again, this discussion that's so significant and so important for precious souls that you went to the cross for and died purposefully and individually just for that person. You went to the cross for me and you went to the cross for each person that's hearing my voice right now. And so we thank you for that and we bless you this night. We give you praise for who you are and whose we are in and through Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless and I hope you have a great evening. Thank you for coming.